It's great to be here with you and to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, this afternoon, <laughs> I would ask you to turn to Micah chapter 6. I, um, many of you know I'm from East Tennessee, so I've been deliberating all week of whether I'm going to say Micah or Micah, but um, <laughs> I think I got that one out correctly, so there you go. If you turn to Micah 6, 8, this is a, a familiar passage to us. Many of you know this one, the concept to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But before we get there, I want you to think with me for just a moment about the Grand Canyon. Uh, My family's going to the Grand Canyon later this month, and we're super excited about it. And many of you maybe have been there, and um, or you've at least seen these sweeping panoramic pictures of the beauty and the grandeur of of the Grand Canyon. Uh, Maybe you've seen a National Geographic show that just kind of pans across the the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset in the canyon. And the Grand Canyon is made up of this kind of mosaic, you could say, of, of rocks and rock strata and all of these sorts of pieces. But if you take any one rock out of the Grand Canyon, you might have a really pretty rock. And you very likely have a rock with multiple facets that you can turn and look at it from different angles that in and of itself is a fairly rich and robust rock. But that rock in and of itself doesn't create the grandeur of the beauty of the canyon. If we isolate that rock, we lose the beauty of the canyon, so to speak. And I think this is similar to what Micah has in mind here in chapter 6 verse 8 and what he presents. I think that it's almost as if Micah has written to us this holistic summary of what it means to be an image bearer of God, living in God's kingdom. So in some sense, yes, doing justice is part of that. But if all we do is justice, then I think we're going to be skewed as Christians. We can't represent that full grandeur of life in Christ if we only do justice, but also if we we only love kindness and we never actually act on that love of kindness, then we also present this skewed picture of the Christian life, this, this skewed picture of the covenant relationship of God and its effect in our lives to then turn and reciprocate that love. And so Micah combines these three phrases, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God in a way that when combined, they create this this beautiful, rich, full, this robust, I'm trying to think if I can come up with some more of them here, Um, this, this, this beautiful picture of what the Christian life looks like. And, And just like you can't isolate a rock from the Grand Canyon and still have the whole canyon, so also I would argue you can't isolate any one of these phrases and still have what Micah calls good. They're all logically and intricately related. So this morning we want to dive into these things. We want to look at these three aspects of what God requires. But before we get too far into those things, I want to look first at Micah 6.8 within its context. I think it's important to understand this book as it is presented in chapter 6. Now Micah was a prophet of the mid-700s B.C., not going to be a test on this, but what that means is he was a close contemporary with Isaiah, a prophet that we may be more familiar with. And like Isaiah, particularly think of Isaiah chapter 1, one of the main issues that Micah confronted was the concept of just paying lip service to loving God by bringing sacrifices, by performing offerings and festivals, all of these things, but they didn't actually live a life that was devoted to the Lord. They just acted like it. Israel lacked a heart that God wanted. They lacked the right attitude 
as they approached God. And if you look at Micah 6 and verse 3, you kind of begin to see a little bit of this leading up to verse 8. Look at verse 3. It says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Notice that the Lord answers his own rhetorical question about how have I wearied you by saying, I haven't actually wearied you. In fact, his answer is, not only did I not weary you, but I actually worked miracles on your behalf for your good and for your protection and for your redemption. He redeemed them from Egypt in verse 4. He gave them leaders like Moses and Aaron to take them through the wilderness. He made Balaam, a pagan prophet, speak blessings over them when Balak intended curses. In light of all of these ways that God demonstrated his loving kindness to his people, his point here is that their behavior is their own responsibility. I have not wearied you. I have been a blessing to you. I have blessed you. So now the wrong attitude with which you come to me, it's on you. It's your responsibility. As the passage continues in verses 6 and 7, Micah plays, he kind of begins to play this part of a questioner. So you kind of think here of an Israelite who would maybe be asking these questions, but Micah is presenting these questions to kind of represent that Israelite. Micah himself is not asking these questions, but here's what they are. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So his first question is, okay, what do you want me to bring? What do you want me to do? In light of this covenant faithfulness you've shown to me, what do you want me to bring to you? Verse 7 gets a little more outlandish. Do you want me to bring thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil. This would be a sacrifice that only a king could bring. What do you want? You want me to bring a king's offering to you? If if that wasn't outlandish enough, the second part of verse seven gets just downright ridiculous. Do you want me to sacrifice my firstborn? Would, Would that satisfy you? This is the attitude with which Israel is coming to the Lord in Micah's day. Now, it's easy for us to look at the people of God at that time and point out how flagrant their sin was and how just downright stupid it would be to ask these kinds of questions. In light of all that God had done for his people, they they want to taunt him with these kinds of questions. Is that that the reaction, their their own self-righteousness? And we look at that and we're very often disgusted by that kind of reaction to God's faithfulness. However, I think if we dig deep enough, many of us struggle with this same desire for self-righteousness, and it's often very, very hidden. We have trouble just reveling in the grace and the kindness that God has shown us in Christ. We, we still seek to find ways to feel better about the fact that God has given us free grace in Christ. We have trouble just accepting that gift very, time, very much. We feel the burden to say yes to every opportunity so that we can be the point man, the one that everybody looks to. And what we do is we find ourselves on the hamster wheel of the Christian life just exhausted. 
rather than resting in the glory of God to fuel our obedience. Now, I'm, I'm right there with you this morning, this afternoon. <laughs> We're way too smart. We're way too smart to ask God, what sacrifice do you want me to bring? But many of us still find ourselves trying to work for our salvation or, or at least evaluating our standing before God based on our performance. That is exactly the mindset that Micah is addressing here. The, the point is not what can you bring to God. The point is how does a covenant relationship with God then empower your life in that kingdom? And so then if you look at verse 8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that's the verse that we're so familiar with. So what does the Lord require of you? What is it that God wants from you? I'm now going to give you that answer. In light of all of his kindness and faithfulness in redemption, this is going to be what is good. And I want you to notice the next word. The next word is but. And I don't know how many of you came to church this afternoon and thought you were going to analyze the grammar of the word but, but here you go. Okay, if it's, if it's in a question like this, it, it works. What does the Lord require of you? But you could also substitute the word except. What does the Lord require of you except? And then he lists those things. So if you kind of rearrange that a little bit and state it positively, not as a question, you would get this. The only things that the Lord requires of you is this. Not the sacrifices, not the rivers of oil, not the firstborn, not the things. This is what God requires of his people. And in other words, we get the very things that God is expecting based on this long history of covenant relationship with his people. So when we come to the Bible and we look for what does a relationship with God through Christ look like, the answer is this, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, I know that takes some unpacking, and so that's where we will go next. The first phrase that we want to look at here is to do justice. And before we get too far into this particular uh, topic, I, I want you to know that I realize that this word justice could be a trigger word in our culture, in our society today. I know that there are, are conversations that could be had on the, the entire spectrum of this topic that may take us weeks to iron out, and some of those conclusions we may just have to agree to disagree on. I realize that there are extremes on both sides of this conversation. And so I would start this whole thing with saying, if you have any questions or comments, you can direct those to Dr. Cook. Um, he would, um, the way I imagine this going is he'll deflect them to Jeff. And then Jeff will deflect them to Drew because Drew's leaving. And we're like, we'll just let him deal with it. Um, but in all seriousness, I, I, I realize this can be difficult. And I realize there can be some disagreements even in, this, even in this room. But the one thing that we cannot disagree on is how this word is defined in this context in Micah in Scripture. We can't let the culture define what is meant by justice. There is a definition of this word that is derived from the Bible regardless of what our culture calls it. And it is that kind of justice that Micah is calling us to do. And so the first subpoint here under to do justice is just that, that we, we don't get to define what justice is. 
I know your next question then is, so tell me what it is. <laughs> what is justice? And the word for justice that's used here is, is used a little over 400 times in the Old Testament. And it's used in a variety of contexts. Sometimes it refers to judgments that God makes as a judicial decision. Sometimes it's closely tied to righteousness or personal holiness. And then other times it carries the idea of a regulation or a stipulation. So there's a lot of different varieties of this word. But I want you to look with me at a few passages in Deuteronomy to help us define what I think Micah had in mind. Now the reason I want to go to Deuteronomy is because I think those are the scriptures, if you will, that Micah would have had on hand to be able to define this word. And the first place that I want you to look is Deuteronomy 10, 18. And these should be on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 10, 18. It says this, He executes justice for the fatherless. That He here is the Lord. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And the first thing that I want you to see here is that God is the one who ultimately executes justice. So, true justice, genuine justice is from God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't practice justice. That doesn't mean that we don't speak out against injustice. But what that does mean is that we can ultimately leave justice in the hands of God. He will execute it. Notice, secondly, that God executes justice on behalf of the outcast in the society. Now, I think this is an important point as it relates to defining this use of the word justice. Notice that the men, he mentions the orphan, the widow, the sojourner. The sojourner would have been someone who is not an Israelite who had joined themselves to Yahweh as part of the people of God. That sojourner who, because they're not an ethnic Israelite, could be outcast or could be ostracized. The orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. In this passage, the justice that God himself will execute is on behalf of the least of these, if we could say it that way as well. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus, isn't it? As the God-man who perfectly executes justice, we see him setting the example for us and, and moving toward the downtrodden, moving toward the outcast, showing compassion to the least of these. Showing grace and love toward those that the society would disregard. That's what we see Jesus doing. And, and because God executes justice in this way, the next passage I would take you to is Deuteronomy 24, 17, where it becomes the, the command for the people. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take the widow's garment in pledge. And in the rest of the context of Deuteronomy 24 right there, in the rest of that section, the verse indicates, the passage indicates that perverting justice in at least one sense would be scavenging the corners of your field so that the widow and the orphan and the sojourner could not glean those edges of the field. That would be categorized as perverting justice here. So perverting justice would be acting selfishly in a way that you intentionally isolate and exploit the least of these. And, and what happens here, if we're not careful, is we begin to think in terms of the, of the us and the them, maybe intentionally or unintentionally. We, take in, we, we think in terms of the clean and the unclean, the us and the them, the right and the wrong, and we create these factions within the people of God and forget that justice is actually caring for the least of these. It's going to care for those who the society would 
would deem as destitute or ostracized. The kind of justice that Scripture conveys here is not one that seeks to be the loudest voice in the cultural conversation. It's not the kind of justice that seeks a platform to just deride everyone who disagrees with you. The kind of justice that Micah has in mind seeks to love and to serve the least of these. To to bear that burden of those who are destitute and cannot advocate for themselves. Interestingly enough, another place in the Old Testament where all of these same ideas are combined is in Leviticus 19. Now, I know you guys are all fresh up on having read Leviticus 19, but you know this passage because at the summary of all of that, Leviticus 19, 18, at the end of that passage, it says this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's really interesting since that's kind of how Jesus summarized all of these same ideas. So the kind of justice that Micah has in mind here seeks to serve one another, to love one another. It seeks to advocate for the least of these. It it seeks to love other people the way you want to be loved. It's the kind of justice that is fueled by compassion, not by rage. So that's, that's what it is. But I would also argue that this kind of justice seeks to resolve injustice by actually getting involved. And by actually doing something on behalf of the least of these. And this leads us to the next sub-point that, that we must actually do justice. Talk is cheap. This passage says, what does the Lord require but to do justice? We have to actually do it. If we just talk about it, it's cheap. John Bloom wrote an article at Desiring God where he's kind of reflecting on Micah 6, 8. And he, he presents some ideas along this same line. He says this, Micah 6, 8 exposes me. I can love abstract ideas of justice and kindness and neglect their concrete expression. It admonishes me. I cannot do justice or love kindness without loving real people. It humbles me, which is just what the doctor ordered if I am really ready to walk with him. It's much easier to love justice than to do Justice. It's much easier to rant against injustice than to take meaningful action to stop it. Ranting costs us little to nothing. Doing justice makes personal, time-consuming, heart-rending demands on us. Loving the idea of justice is cheap. But doing justice almost always requires loving a vulnerable or oppressed person in a way that is personally costly to us. True love is not cheap. So God tests our hearts by making justice concrete. It's something we must do. And so with that in mind, I'm sitting here this week racking my brain. Okay, what do we do? What do I, if I'm supposed to unpack this for you, what do I give you now to say, here's what you do? And I came up with at least these things. I think it means investing in the children at African Children Mission and Five Loaves. It means getting on a plane and traveling there to serve and to love them the next time a trip is offered. My wife is on the missions team. I have an inside scoop. I don't know anything, but I can say, let's do this. It looks like getting involved with Orphan Care through Orphan Care Alliance, another organization that our church partners with through the GCO. It looks like asking Ben McMillan how you can volunteer to give devotionals at Forest Hill Nursing Home. For the the elderly people there who are becoming more and more ostracized and outcast in our society today. If, if 
If we think about this in a different way, and, and it hits a little too close to home for some of you, it, it means putting to death your pornography addiction that fuels the exploitation of women and children in the human trafficking industry. That is doing justice. You are protecting those who are ostracized in our society. Put it to death. And we often get so caught up in holding some abstract idea of justice that we neglect actually doing what Scripture puts before us. In Micah 6, Israel rhetorically asks, what sacrifice do you want me to bring? And God's answer through Micah is that he actually he wants his people to serve and to love the least of these. Loving your neighbor as yourself overshadows any sacrifice that you could bring before the Lord. Proverbs 21.3 says this, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The, uh, the next element here of, of this kind of beautiful summary and mosaic that Micah puts together for us is to love kindness. And the word kindness here is the same word used in other places in Scripture to define God's steadfast love. Or we might hear it translated at times as his covenant faithfulness. Think about his, his loyalty to covenant, that kind of Kindness. So it's, it's a much more robust word than just the kindness of two children sharing a toy. It, it's much thicker than that, much richer than that. The word, it encompasses who God is, his very character. Think about when Moses was in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passes by and says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the same word. We could say abounding in kindness. That's the same thing. The word also carries this sense of loyalty to the covenant that I mentioned. And in that sense, the word encompasses covenant faithfulness on God's part. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. There's the word again, steadfast love. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We could put in there the kindness of the Lord never ceases. The covenant faithfulness of the Lord never ceases. The loyalty of the Lord never ceases. All of those are the same idea. This is a much more robust word than just kindness. So, so what, what does that mean then? In this sense, to love that kind of kindness, to, to love God's steadfast love, I think it means this. I think it means to treasure the covenant faithfulness of God in such a way that you become ever more enthralled with His kindness to you in Christ Jesus. That we treasure what He's done for us such that we become ever more enthralled with what He has done on our behalf. The passage doesn't say recognize God's justice, or sorry, recognize God's steadfast love. It doesn't say just confess his steadfast love. It doesn't say make a research project to try to figure out what this word means. It says to love it, to cherish it, to treasure that kind of love and kindness from an almighty God on your behalf through Christ. So what do we do then? That's what it means. What do we do then? Our response then to that kind of covenant fidelity from God is to return covenant fidelity to God. In the power of His kindness and faithfulness to us, we now are empowered to live out that kindness and faithfulness in covenant relationship with 
him. Proverbs 16, 6 says this, by steadfast love, there's the word again, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Notice that the first half of this verse indicates that it is by that same kind of covenant faithfulness that, that atones for iniquity. It's that same thing that atones for iniquity. And we, we know that to be true most clearly through the covenant faithfulness of God to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die as the final and full atoning sacrifice for sin. But notice also that the proverb doesn't stop there. The rest of the verse puts the onus on, on those who respond to that kind of steadfast loyalty from God. Those who fear the Lord turn away from evil. In other words, those who turn toward God, those who run toward Him, those who hold Him in high reverence because of His kindness, that's the person who then turns away from evil. That's the person who then responds in humility to God's kindness and submits to His Lordship and it's that person then that grows in Christ-likeness as they turn away from evil and actually do justice. In other words, if, if any of us are going to actually do justice as God commands through Micah here, we have to be enthralled with His steadfast love shown to us in Christ. That steadfast love of God demonstrated toward us is what fuels our turning to the least of these in order to serve and to love them as we love ourselves. The last element here of, of Micah's mosaic is to walk humbly with your God. Walking here, I think, implies certainly active obedience. If we think about the word walking and this idea of active obedience in the book of Deuteronomy, it's, it, it conveys a way of life that coincides with um, the statutes and the commands that God has given. You hear it in the book of Deuteronomy as to walk in His ways. Paul uses this kind of analogy of walking also for the Christian life in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this walking with God is a way of life that has been transformed by the covenant faithfulness that God has shown to us. It's a way of life that follows a consistent pattern of doing justice and seeking the good of our neighbor precisely because God has freed us to do so in Christ. It's a walking that seeks to turn away from evil and to do good, but in the power of the Spirit not on your own terms. It is an active obedience, but not just do we have to walk actively, but we have to walk humbly. To walk humbly here means to walk with wisdom and discretion. But it's a wisdom and discretion that recognizes first and foremost our dependence upon God. The word here is used only two times in the Bible. It's used here in Micah 6, 8, and it's used one other time in Proverbs eleven two, where it says, when pride comes... Then comes disgrace, but with the humble, there's that word again, but with the humble is wisdom. So this kind of humility is one that recognizes our dependence upon God and then walks in the fear of the Lord, loving the Lord with all our heart. This kind of walking that is presented here, it doesn't get up in the morning and immediately consider your own strategy for how to fight against Satan that day. It's good to strategize, but if you do that on your own, it's not going to help. 
Instead, this kind of walking that's humble, it first looks to God as the source of sustaining grace. Humbly walking with God does not allow room for me or you to tell or to show people how great we are. Walking humbly with God first looks to Christ as a needy sinner and then expects Him to respond with grace in time of need. And for most of us, that's all day, every day. Through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, He purchased for us the ability to live in the grandeur of His kingdom. He purchased for us the ability to love our neighbor rightly, precisely because we treasure the covenant faithfulness that He's displayed to us in submitting to the cross. And and therefore, therefore, because all of that is true, we live humbly in this kingdom because we know that everything we have is a gift from God in Christ Jesus. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we work for. It's not something that we bring to God in order to gain value in His eyes. Rather, we serve and we love others because we cannot help but love the Lord our God with all our hearts based on the immense mercy that He has shown to us. If you'll allow me this freedom just for a second, I want to kind of restate Micah 6.8. And, and expand on it just a little bit to try to bring some clarity to these ideas. He has told you, O oh man, what will lead to your flourishing and joy in God's kingdom. What is good? And you also know what God requires in His kingdom. In His kingdom, not yours. Do justice by loving your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with everything that you can conjure up. And then go live out your own covenant faithfulness to God by dependently clinging to His sustaining grace. I think that's a good summary of fleshing out what Micah has in mind here. Now, I wrote that summary, so I'm a little biased, but hopefully that gives a bit of clarity and conclusion to some of these ideas. I mentioned at the beginning uh, that all of these phrases, I think, are put together in this mosaic, this, this beautiful picture of life in God's kingdom and flourishing as an image bearer. And like that rock in the Grand Canyon that, that can't be removed and still, in and of itself, it doesn't present the beauty. You also, if you try to remove all those rocks, the more you remove, the, the less beautiful it becomes. And in a similar way, I have this diagram that I want to show to you that kind of summarizes these ideas and shows you by picture how I think these ideas have to all be intermingled together. They're all kind of working together in this beautiful mosaic that maybe like a kaleidoscope just kind of gets turned and shaped in different ways but is still presenting that beauty of the whole. But more than that, I want to use this diagram to show you that if we remove any one of these pieces, the mosaic falls apart. So if you remove, we'll start with the next one. If you remove to do justice, Proverbs 28.5 classifies you as evil or wicked. Proverbs 28.5 says, evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. In other words, if, if you don't understand what Micah means by justice, if you don't understand that it has an idea of reaching out to the least of these, and then you don't do that, this proverb classifies us as wicked. Or evil. In the next one, if you take out the idea of loving God's covenant faithfulness, loving God's covenant kindness to us, then we fall into Phariseeism. 
Luke eleven forty two says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and yet you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In, in other words, what he's saying here is, great job on the rue. Great job on the herbs. Great job on bringing the mint. Great job on bringing these things. You should have done those without neglecting the others, but the problem is you have neglected the love of God. You're doing things, but out of the wrong motivation. There is a love of God that has been shown to you in Christ that then motivates your love for others. And if we rule that out, then we become Pharisees. And the last one here, if we remove walk humbly with your God, Proverbs 28, 26 says that we're a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. In other words, the one who walks in the fear of the Lord, the one who walks humbly with Christ and in the power of Christ, that person will be delivered both from the eternal consequences of sin and from the moment-by-moment temptations that would seek to draw us into sin and folly. So in light of this, this beautiful mosaic of life in God's kingdom, my prayer is that God would give us the grace to humbly walk in His sufficiency. So that as we treasure His kindness more and more through Christ, that we would be motivated and empowered to love the least of these as we love ourselves. I think that is what God requires. This is that interconnected beauty of justice, kindness, and humility. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word. And Lord, we're we're thankful for the opportunity to freely sit under it and listen to it. But Father, we know that apart from your work, these things will just... um, fly past our ears. And so, Lord, I pray that you would take your word and as we meditate on it and mull it over in our minds, I pray that you would take our word and your word and impress it on our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the prophet Micah and, and, and for making such clear and, and simple statements. But Lord, even though they're, they're simple, we also recognize that they're not easy. And, and in our frailty and in our, in our weakness, Lord, we... We ask that your spirit would help us with these things, that your spirit would, would help us to love the least of these, to help us to love our neighbor, to help us to love those people who may seem unlovable. Lord, help us with that. Lord, help us to be ever more enthralled with your grace and kindness to us in Christ. Lord, help us to love your covenant faithfulness. And Lord, give us humility. We pray by, the, by your spirit that you would give us humility that we would not rest in our own power to earn favor before you, but that we would rest in the sustaining grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would do these things for the sake of your kingdom, that you would do these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do these things for the great name and exaltation of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.